welcome to the latest episode of Down the Context. I'm your host, Ryan Shriver, CTO of Singlestone. And today I'm happy to welcome my old time friend, Justin Gettlin, uh, CEO of Cognitech. Welcome, Justin, to the program. Hello. Beautiful back porch in North Carolina, I, I see there. <laughs> Gorgeous spot. I try to keep a, you know, a nice, I look like I have a big green. It does. It, it, looks, it looks like your sideshow, uh, sideshow Bob uh, there from the, from the Simpsons, <laughs> only, only in green. Um, <laughs> yeah. Now, now I'm between, between ferns. ferns. Oh, okay. you beat me to a match. All right, I'm looking uh, forward to this. So, uh, Justin, um, for our audience, why don't you go ahead and introduce uh, yourself and tell us a little bit about uh, uh, your company. Sure. Hi. Uh, well, I'm Justin Getland, um, founder, co-founder and CEO of a company called Cognitect, um, headquartered in Durham, North Carolina. Uh, 17 years old, founded it in 2003 with my best friend and good buddy, Stu Halloway. Uh, and now that company was called Relevance Incorporated back when we founded it. And um, in 2013, we changed the name to Cognitect uh, when we focused exclusively on Clojure, um, co primary corporate backer for Clojure. Uh, and when we launched Datomic, which is our proprietary database. And um, big news in our world was that about six weeks ago, we merged with um, a company called New Bank, which is a Brazilian um, startup uh, bank, um, seven years old, huge company now. Um, so we're part of that family of companies. Um, and uh, all that really means is that we continue to sell Datomic and continue to be the primary corporate backer for Clojure. And we're doing a ton of work with New Bank. So. <laughs> awesome. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Uh, so, fun, you know, fun journey, six weeks now. So, <laughs> yeah. So, so I guess since all that happened, all given everything, you haven't actually gone down. Have you visited Brazil or visited them when all this, or is it no? Entirely Unfortunately, I have yet to go down. I was actually scheduled to go down and speak at a conference in Brazil in 2008 at a Ruby conference down there, um, but the Brazilian and U.S. governments had a um, some sort of um, spat, and they canceled my visa a couple weeks before oh, wow. I was supposed to go down. So I've never gotten to go, but I have met a lot of the team in person because um, they've traveled up to uh, our conference, Closure Conj, and, and other Closure conferences in the States. And so I've met a lot of the technical team that way. And of oh. course, they've been a customer of ours for a super long time. So we okay. know them pretty well. I got you. That makes a lot of sense. So, so maybe, you know, tell me, and you can talk about this from sort of your, 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 your Cognitech world, but maybe transitioning to your newer, when you guys get engaged with customers to sort of solve problems, I mean, the whole point of this sort of, you know, podcast, it's all the problems. How do you go about that? What's your process? Can you walk us through sort of, you know, how you go about you know, framing and, and solving that problems? Yeah. And, and, you know, I'll, I'll give you the, this answer from the consultant standpoint, but but it actually doesn't change much now that we're doing a lot of this work with Newbank because essentially they're just a huge engineering company with a lot of problems to solve. And you know, yeah. when we walk up and engage, we engage in the same sort of way. So our process, you know, has always started with trying to get the customer to tell us why they're in pain. Um, if there's not pain behind the request, then there's probably not an urgent need for us to do any work. You know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah. Uh, that, pain, that pain can often be thought of more optimistically, like, oh, there's an opportunity for us to grab some part of the market or whatever. But that means that you're suffering the pain of you don't have that market. Um, uh, and we like to frame it that way just because it's it, it gets to the heart of the matter 
the next step is defining success. Um, uh, and for a lot of customers and a lot of projects, it can be very difficult to reach that point of clarity. Um, a lot of people think success is when the final product is shipped and we've attracted a hundred million customers or we've, you know, whatever that answer is. And that's not actually valuable. Um, there has to be a much deeper term definition of success. And we try to keep people focused on the fact that success can also mean determining that you shouldn't build this thing. Um, it, it can be a quite powerfully good outcome to learn. Oh, that was a terrible idea and we should never have gone about it. <laughs> um, so uh, usually um, when we would get involved in a brand new uh, conversation, we tend to skip past all of the song and dance about, well, how do you work? How do we work? What's the, you know, all of that. And we tend to go straight to a whiteboard, right? Start, start vomiting out what you've struggled with, what you're struggling with, why it's painful for you, why it's painful for your customers or your team or whatever those questions are. Uh, and we start brainstorming answers right away. Um, and when we were doing that as part of a consulting business, we found that to be the most powerful sales tool we had because it, it turns out that most people aren't used to having people take their problems seriously without like the signed paperwork and the money changing yes. hands. And the, yes. uh, um, and if you can skip right to problem solving, it tends to warm them up and get um, the ideas flowing. And it also, frankly, just helps build a better proposal when you get down to proposal writing. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then we always try to build some notion of, of what's a good experiment that we can run that's short term, that's low cost, that determines, like solves the biggest question in their mind. And that question could be, will this technology even work? It could be, will we work together well as a group? And it could be, do my customers even care? Like all of those are valid questions to ask. And, you know, a lot of people talk about MVPs. I've never been a big fan of that term, minimal, minimum viable product. Yeah. Um, it's, it sounds, I, I wrote a blog post about this years ago. It, it, it sounds like, you know, in the, in the person's head, they have this picture of a perfect shiny unicorn and minimum viable product sounds like you're trying to give them a hoof. Like it's, it can't possibly live up to the picture in their head. Um, so uh, I tend not to use that term very much, but but the, the concept is still sound. What's a small thing we can build, build well, validate a thesis, iterate on, move forward. And, and um, uh, uh, like I said, there, there's, there's a great story from, from probably a decade ago, not quite a decade ago, um, we had a customer was already working with, right? We, they were a, a paying customer. We were building some software for them and they had a desire so that they were building um, medical devices that would monitor patients in the home setting, right? So, um, you know, less intrusive, you know, you didn't have to have the big hospital monitor and they would connect to a back office, that kind of thing. Um, and so we were building the software for the back end of that. And then they decided, well, they had this group of people who were already out in trucks delivering um, machines, like you know, medical machines uh, to the customer base. And they wanted to give them a, a mobile tool 
to say, okay, well, I've got six devices I'm going to install in this house. I'm going to walk in. I'm going to mark down the serial number for all six, and I'm going to do it on my phone, and it's all great. And so they asked us to come in and, and build the software for the mobile phone. And about an hour into the first conversation, again, before we'd even like landed the project, we said, well, can we talk to one of the truck drivers? <laughs> and they said, uh, why would you want to do that? I'm like, well, it's for them. Can we just talk to one? And they got one on the phone. And a half an hour later, we came back with a design for their um, application, which was a sheet of paper and a pencil. And that sheet of paper had uh, a bunch of lines on it that were marked device number one, device number two, blah, blah, blah. We said, if you just photocopy that 800 times and then send them a clipboard with this pencil and this thing, it's going to cost you 80 bucks and your truck drivers will be happy. And, and that's the right answer. And, um, it was one of the proudest design moments and and problem solving moments of our life because we skipped past about six layers of people just assuming that mobile phones were going to work. And then what you found is you have these truck drivers, they're wearing gloves all the time. <laughs> yes. They, they, they work in the cold. They work with like dirty equipment. They're like, we, we can't, <laughs> I can't use Won't a work. phone to do this job. Uh, so yeah, just, that's the kind of problem solving we love to do. <laughs> That's awesome. And, you know, it's really, Matisse and I think you describe human-centered design, right, 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 in, in a nutshell right there, yeah. right? You, you go in and it's like, well, who are you going to benefit? And let's go talk to them and let's walk through their world. And let's do a ride along on a truck and let's do, and we're going to get a lot more insights. You know, how do you, you know, it's, it must be hard as an engineering company. I struggle with our engineers. They love to write code, right? But sometimes writing code is the worst idea ever, right? And to your point, there's a much simpler solution. Um, in that case, you, you potentially may have done yourself out of some business, but long term, you probably did. You probably came across in that conversation as a trusted problem solver, not just somebody who's going to go off and go build you something that you asked for. And then if it doesn't work, say, well, sorry, you're, you, you asked for it. Right. You know, so. Exactly. I mean, I, I cannot tell you the number of times that we have been faced with this problem of like saying at the end of a project, I don't think you should have built this. I would much rather say that at the beginning of the project, right? Yes. Just, you know, there's no world where you get a better outcome. You know, I, I got referrals from that company we gave them paper for. <laughs> there are definitely projects that didn't work out well that will never refer us. Like, you know, it, so yeah. uh, it is way better to to give people the solution to a problem than it is to give them code. And, and this is another mantra of ours, which is, just because you are a software engineer does not mean that writing code is your primary job. And in fact, yes. it ought to be the fifth or sixth thing you get to uh, when you're solving a problem. Um, uh, uh, somebody made a joke in the company years ago that, that um, uh, agile does not mean always be typing, right? Like <laughs> it's, it's, uh, uh, there's a lot more to it than that. Um, so yeah, I, I, I try to make sure that all the engineers that I work with understand that I'm not measuring them on lines of code output. I'm not even measuring them on cards pushed, like all of that stuff, you know, you have to sort of track that, but yeah. um, I would much rather have members of the team who have net negative um, code lines of code over the course yeah. of their engagement, like remove more. Um, uh, I like to think of what we do is removing pain from the world, like, and, yes. you know, <laughs> uh, removing code can lead to that. <laughs> 
Yeah, you know, I love your term pain. Oftentimes we call it friction, but friction is just a nicer business or term. It really is pain. I mean, that, that's that's probably the hard emotional. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's more of an emotional hook kind of like yeah, it's painful. Like let's just get it out yeah, of the table. Painful. Get it get it out of the way. Like the, think of it that way and think about how you can remove that from the world and you'll feel better about, you know, how how you contributed. Um they, what's the old thing about the carpenter problem? Like, you know, so many software engineers, because what we've built is ephemeral. That's right. Or as a carpenter, like, I built a table. I can touch this table. I can look at mm -hmm. the table. When I call my parents and they say, what did you do today? I can say, I built this table. I can yes. send them a picture of the table. And it's very difficult for software engineers, especially ones working on really large teams, to have that kind of outcome. I mean, you know, obviously, if you work at Netflix and you built the the scrolling selector box, yeah. you can show people that that's what you built. But when you're working at a bank and what you just built was something that, you know, optimizes for tax rates across three different countries, like, so if you can, if you can at all orient yourself to say, well, I removed pain by shipping that somebody's lives, yes. you know, lives got better then it helps. Yes. Yeah, one of our recent engagements, uh, success was their ops engineer could take a vacation with his wife and not get paid all the time. That was success, right? Yeah. He learned couldn't his job because nobody else knew how to fix anything, right? And that yeah. was pain. And that's a case where making it personal, in my experience, like making it personal, like that was John. And then John can now do yeah. this. It helps to sort of be like, even internally, because we just sort of like develop. So there's, there's internal pain often in the IT ops area of the organization that they live through this stuff, right? And so it is interesting, it is interesting. So so tell us a bit, so along this lesson, one of the other things that as we're reminded you were talking is often we get engaged with, hey, I've got a solution already, can you just come in and sort of sort of build it for me, right? And so we wanna get back to, well, what problem are you trying to solve first? And sometimes you can do that and sometimes you don't. When a client or a customer comes to you and says, hey, you know, come in and just build this, you know, is, is that whiteboarding session enough in sort of the sales process to sort of steer them or, cause I know sometimes people bought licenses and, and, and all geeked up to ready to use sort of the newest technology and letting them down could be a hard thing. Like how do you sort of um, manage that? Kind of two answers to that. Um, uh, the first is we definitely have had occasions where the whiteboard session wasn't enough. We landed a gig and when we got there, we learned, you know, extra context that, you know, made us have to stop and think. And so there was a, um, we had a, a gig, I'm going to say in 2012, 2013, somewhere in that time frame where we were really starting to move forward on um, working exclusively with Clojure, where a company called us and they said, look, we have, um, we have this big existing code base. Uh, that we want to transition over to Clojure. Um, and that code base was two and a half million lines of common Lisp. Oh. Uh, and oh. when I heard that, my, my actual response was, is it sentient? <laughs> uh, but, you know, we decided that we could probably help. And then we flew a couple of people out there and they got on the ground and they called me that first night and they said, there's no, there's no chance. We can't help them on the time frame or the budget that they need, yes. it's just not possible. And so we had to arm that team that evening with how to say to a customer, even though we'd already signed, you know, a deal to say, Hey, look guys, we're going to have to 
back out. Like, we're sorry. Here are all the reasons why. And, 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 you know, we, we want to help, but, but you are going to hate us worse if we go through with the rest of this project. Um, and, and for sure the whiteboarding session isn't all, you know, like I said, it just can't be enough. And, and it's great when it's, Greenfield and there's no existing solution and we're just brainstorming some ideal world. Pretty often the surprises only show up much later in those sorts of scenarios. But when somebody does have an existing solution and we're coming in to either, you know, help modify it or add to it, or in some cases simplify it or whatever the actual request is, um, you have to get through whatever the, the, trust boundary is. So in a consulting world, you've got to get through the NDA and pair up with the people who know the system. In a world where you're just part of a larger team, you've got to get with the other team and get them to sort of, you know, brain dump their context to you. And it's a, it's a cost. Like this is the problem for all of these things. You pay a cost just to have these conversations. If you're the customer or the team with the solution or whatever, you clearly have a lot to do. You wouldn't be talking to somebody else to help you out. If, yeah. you know, if you had all the kind of time in the world, you would just yeah. figure out how to do it. Um, and so it can be painful to go through that sort of second level conversation. You know, if we did the whiteboarding, Hey, yeah, we, 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 we met, we, we meet eye to eye. It feels good. Now we spend a week and Oh my God, we've learned something right something not good here um but the 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 sort of the the way i've always thought about project management is to try to surface and solve the hardest things first mm -hmm. right if you leave them for the end you'll always blow your estimations and yeah. your time scales and you'll always leave the biggest hand grenade yeah to lead the project. Um, uh, a good friend and, and former colleague of mine, Jason Rudolph, um, always used to say that the, the problem with taking all the easy things first is you get into a, a mode where you're just feeling good, everything's going great. And he said, he always felt like his job was to look under all the chairs for where the, the bomb was. Like where, yeah. where something is gonna go wrong, I better find it now. Um, I'd rather just do that stuff up front. Um, yeah. And so, you know, we always want to poke at the hard stuff early, whether that hard stuff is technical or interpersonal or political or whatever. Yeah. Right? Um, you know, and it's important for engineers to remember that most of the problems they're going to face aren't technical. That is a tough one. In fact, I was going to ask you, you know, it sounds like your engineers have a bit of that human centered design. Have they usually had that and do you recruit for that or is that something they come uh, to your organization and learn because I have seen in, in, in our team and other engineers I work with, you know, sometimes there is that sort of reluctance to you know, get out there and talk to people and understand, you know, they're kind of in that sort of, I like to build code. How do you help? Do you hire for it or, or do you train it or how does that sort of work? Uh, we definitely hire for it. Um, okay. At Cognitech, we've always had our hiring process has changed over time. It used to be the case that in order to get a job at Cognitech, you had to submit a writing sample. You had to come in and pair program with somebody, at least somebody, usually three people. And then you had to give a presentation to the whole company. Like those were all part of Whoa. the hiring. 
Wow. Um, we changed that process when we were no longer um, hiring to live in Durham, right? When we made the transition to being a remote first, or not remote, I'm sorry, distributed first. Even this many years later, I still have trouble with that. <laughs> Don't use the word remote, use the word distributed. Um, uh, uh, remote means I am separated from the heart of the company. Distributed means we're all over the place. Um, uh, but when we, strip, when we switched to being a distributed company, we had to change the way we hire. And what we changed to was um, you, you get a contract with us first. You're a contractor and, huh. and eventually we hire people out of the contractor pool. And that way we just all get to know each other. Um, uh, so yeah, our hiring process is always focused on how do you interact with other human beings? And it's not pair programming. That is so far down the list, right? I wanna know, uh, do you feel ownership? of the problem that you're solving? Do you take it personally when something is standing in the way of solving the problem? Um, uh, we, we have customers and teams that we work with now that are you know, geographically dispersed, um, language barriers can be a problem, but more often than not, it's just office politics are the problem. Like, oh, this person really wants to ship this feature, but doesn't, you know, have the political power to make it be the top priority, but they're running around causing problems because the person who does have the authority is pushing things this other direction. And, yes. you know, as the engineer where you're at the crux of that, you can't just live in that pain. You have to be willing to turn around and say, hey, come on. Right? But you're the only one who can see it because that it, it meets at your desk. So we've always tried to hire for that level of ownership, um, that level of willingness to, to, to just radiate truth. Um, uh, uh, so it is part of that. It's hard to train for because, you know, you don't take a week long training course in speaking up. <laughs> right? yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, the training is re is really on the job training. It's, it's experiential. It's watching other people do it. And so, you know, we uh, we we haven't always um, made that our highest priority, but it is something we look for um, in candidates. And and a lot of the time, the way I've described it is just being an adult. You know, don't don't let yourself get bullied around, and don't be a jerk about it. But but yeah. if you're living in, stop. You don't have to. <laughs> yeah. um, it's, so. it's fixable. Many of these things are fixable, right? But yeah, point, yes, fixable. yeah. Um, yeah. And frankly, the the you know here's one of those weird things that's it's always weird to say, but one of the things people always have to remember is that by and large in our field, mm -hmm. working with other people that you're currently working with it is is a decision you are making. Like these are voluntary associations. You don't have. You're a, you're a software engineer. It's the most high demand job in the world. Yes. <laughs> if you're working yeah. with an awful team, go find a better one. It's not that difficult. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, you're right. And I, uh, I talk about with our team, like, you know, you have to keep challenging problems because good software engineers have lots of options that they choose yeah. to, to work with you. But trust me, you have to do what it takes to not only fulfill them from the basic needs, you know, the financial benefits, those sort of things, but really from an intellectual perspective, you have to continue to challenge and push because otherwise you just get static and, and bored and, and, and go somewhere else. So 
Exactly. That's always so, that's always a cha- challenge we all have, right? Is how do you keep those exactly. really challenging problems always in front of your team that gets them motivated and eager? You know, one of the things that I was I was looking at in a research for this interview is I noticed that you guys have taken a, a direct sponsorship um, through some of the Closure Script um, supporters. I think I, w- I was reading that you guys have taken an active sponsorship, and I thought that was an interesting idea. I haven't seen elsewhere, but I would love to hear more about, you know, what can you describe it for our audience a bit? And then what led you and and your organization to want to sort of support like that? We began using GitHub sponsors, which, by the way, GitHub sponsors just can't say enough about uh, the team at GitHub for building that, um, coming up with the idea. Uh, And and for those of you who don't know, I hope everybody does. But but the idea is that, um, you know, open source developers uh, have had a terrible time getting sponsorships um, throughout, you know, it's very difficult because A, you have to go off and, you know, figure out who's going to sponsor you, but then you have to figure out how to get money from them to you. And there are tax implications and there are employment implications, right? Like if you are taking money directly from a company and working a certain number of hours, then do you count as an employer? This whole this complicated mess. And GitHub realized that, A, hey, we already connect developers and companies all over the world. And B, we have this giant payment platform. And and C, we have tax lawyers. So why don't we set up a thing where we can allow people to to, to sponsor people directly through our mechanisms and our infrastructure? And And it takes away a lot of those pains. So instead of an open source developer having to go and join or form a nonprofit in order to, like, have the money flow in a tax free world, you just sign up through GitHub sponsors. So, so awesome to them. Um, when that program sort of came on board, we took that as an opportunity to think carefully about our values as a company. And, and clearly, as a company for 17 years, we have benefited greatly from open source, right? I mean, we, we did Ruby and Rails development for years and years and years. Um, uh, we certainly wouldn't be the company we are, we are today um, if we hadn't gone through that phase, we, we obviously have been a sponsor of Clojure and Rich Hickey specifically for a very long time. Um, and we produce a lot of open source, right? Clojure, uh, you know, we pay people like Alex Miller to work on Clojure. A lot of the open source around the Clojure community came out of Friday projects. Clojure script came out of a Friday project, um, things like that. And so uh, with David Nolan and Mike Fikes, um, they are the primary maintainers of ClojureScript. They they the they're the ones who are you know doing doing the majority of the work for that platform. And and we wanted to a put our money where our mouth is and yeah. sponsor them directly. Like hey, let's let's be part of the solution of you having the wherewithal to work on this stuff. But also be to to convince other companies to do the same because you know m- most companies are like us. They benefit greatly from open source. Open source developers are just like other people. They have families to feed. They have kids to put through college. They have mortgages to pay. And if you want more of what they do, right, not all of them are getting paid by their their company to do the open source work. And in fact, I would say most of them aren't, right? right most of them are doing it on their nights and weekends and fitting it in where they can. And if they can make a living doing nothing but building that open source, they would probably do it during the week and they'd have better lives and you'd get more open source software. And so I think what we said about it at the time was, you know, if if as a company, you just thought about it as a, a commodity, as a, as a utility, 
right? The open source is your water bill. You don't have to go buy a license. But if on a monthly basis, you kick some money into that, you know, you got your open source bill. Okay, I'm paying it out. Uh, how much better would that make the community of open source developers? How much more, how much better would it make the community of open source consumers to have yeah. that sort of infrastructure? So that's what we like about it. And, and um, uh, I hope other people take advantage of it for sure. It's, it's a really great idea. I, I think we benefited from a lot. Certainly I know over the years of open source, we haven't done as much as we sort of can and should do to, to sort of give back. But I think this is a great mechanism um, to sort of connect that. To, to, your, to your point, yeah. it's, it's interesting is in our career, you know, there's been a big evolution from the big proprietary vendors to open source going from the fringe and research and university to essentially the main stream. And we all knew it was, it was potential with there, but I've seen a big shift, certainly in the last 10 to 15 years of open Absolutely. source is the new norm, right? Those old proprietary systems are, are not the norm um, anymore. And so. No, not at all. Uh, and. And you know you want to you want to be cognizant of the fact that you know there are great companies that are built around open source and who have built you know large commercial enterprises around those that, that open source. But man, the amount of open source like if you just run a dependencies check on whatever project you happen to be on, what I would love more than anything else is a tool that showed me the dependency graph for my code and as a little annotation how many people are committers on each one of those things? Because I'll bet you 90% of the things in your dependency tree have one committer on them. Yeah. Right, like that's the part, that's the, 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 the long tail of open source that, that those people are just, they're fighting through and, well, you know, if one of those things fell off, you'd have to go change your whole project. <laughs> and yeah. uh, that's the kind of stuff, so. Well, Justin, who have been some of your influences along the way? So you, you've gone from somebody, when I first met you, you were brilliantly a uh, software developer. I know you, you still are. And now and it's been a while since we talked. Now you really have this sort of human-centered design, problem-solving approach. Like, who have been some of your personal influences along the way that have helped you sort of shape your thinking and how you go about sort of um, problem-solving? Um, uh I would, uh, how long do I have? <laughs> you guys, as long as you want. And by the way, we'll have a list that goes along with this. We'll put out links and so, so people can can discover these folks too. Awesome. Um, uh, so uh, let me start with um, uh, the, the, the first time that I got um, out of my own headspace and and started to think of software development as a as a career and a calling and a and a craft as opposed to just a job right uh, was when I left um, a, a company in Nashville and I went to developmentor uh, to teach and at developmentor um, uh, there were a bunch of people but it started with Don Box um, uh, who is now at Microsoft. Uh, and Don, um, back then was, you know, the father of com programming and, um, uh, just truly, uh, a, a leading light and, um, working near him. I never really worked with Don much, but I, you know, worked at his company and, uh, was influenced greatly by the way he thought about software and the way he thought about teaching other people software and, and stuff. And so there's a bunch of other people at development tour, like, um, Chris Sells and Ted Patterson and, uh, 
uh, Aaron Sconard and Fritz Onion and just a whole bunch of people there that, that really opened up my worldview greatly. Um, and then uh, after that, um, when we started um, Relevance, uh, we got involved um, on a tour called the No Fluff Just Stuff Tour, which I'm sure you oh, remember, yeah. Ryan. Day. Um, and there were just a ton of people on that tour who were fantastic. Um, uh, Venkat Subramaniam, um, Mike Nygaard, uh, Nate Shuda, Brian Getz, Neil Ford, David Bach, um, uh, uh, Bruce Tate, um, uh, just, you know, all of those folks. Uh, and working in a space with them was fantastic. But the, the moment that changed my life and changed the course of relevance was uh, sitting down with Dave Thomas one day in a hallway in uh, um, Reston, actually, in, at a ho- the, yeah, the hotel in I Reston. That we were yeah. doing that no fluff. And he asked me if we would read uh, this uh, uh, book about Ruby programming that he was in the middle of. Uh, and uh, that changed course of history for us, uh, pretty greatly. Um, and then, uh, and then I would say Rich Hickey, of course, to Halloway, who I've been working with through all of those stuff, yeah, right? Yeah. But, yeah, um, yeah. Like Stu, exactly. Yeah. Just, just giving for Stu, but, but Rich and yeah. Stu, uh, um, you know, and the work, uh, that they do on closure and on Datomic, um, uh, is also, uh, a massive influence for me. So, so right now, um, uh, you know, I, I would, I, I guess, special honorable mention goes to um, DHH uh, during those Rails days. Um, and uh, right now, Mike Nygaard, uh, friend, dear friend, uh, uh, but also brilliant thinker, uh, and Adrian Cockcroft over at um, AWS uh, are um, also people I follow and, and think carefully about anything they have to say. <laughs> Yes, I had a, a chance to meet Adrian uh, two years ago. One of my clients, he was brought in, and I was like, "Oh my God!" It's like talking to the, the God, right? You know. And the, oh, my <laughs> who, who is this guy? Who uh, he was a distinguished fellow at Sun, and then he went on. Yeah. Crazy, you know, like you know. And so I was, I was like, "Battery injuries." Yeah, I was like, "Can I just be in your presence and, and observe some of that?" But you, you're you're right. Jay Zimmerman had a great little thing going there. You know, there there was a while yeah. there where there was a great little sort of thing um i'm going there's a ton of just that's where i think when i was coming up kind of my career i look to you and, and to a lot of the others that you mentioned it's just being on the progressive end of what's really happening and and i like a lot of java developers once i got into to ruby and probably in part by what the work that you guys i know dave thomas who was just a ex, just the best storyteller and, and the best presenter sort of ever like yeah you know, um, just awesome like you know the whole uh, the, the cargo cult like to hear him tell a cargo cult story um, oh, yeah. I'm sure that's recorded <laughs> somewhere, but that, that we, we should find the, the link to that, Lindsay. Um, it's just absolutely yeah. phenomenal. But, you know, there's this great sort of um, time when, you know, a lot of these leading thinkers were coming into there. And I, I picked up Ruby and started learning Ruby from probably you guys and the, and the whole movement um, of where it's going. And it was coming from Java. It was such a refreshing um, language. You know, yes. and, and that's and that's what you know, when I think about design, you know, often it's like, well, how does design apply to engineering? I look at a language like Ruby and how it was designed. And then I look at a language like, you know, a job or any derivative of C. And it's just 
it's a beautiful design. You know, that's another way I think the design can, can turn out. It doesn't always have to be visual or artistic. It, it, it can be expressed in these things like programming languages that we take to be very technical, but they also have an element in design, aesthetics, and empathy. I, I will say one other thing though on the, on the, in terms of, of um, influences and, and specifically around the human-centered design. There's a company called IDEO. I don't know if you're of familiar course. with IDEO. Yeah, uh, I've taken their courses. I love them, yes. There you go. So so back in like 07, 08, I, I sat down with one of my notebooks and, and started drafting the how to make relevance the IDEO of software consultancies. Oh, wow. um, uh, because the way that they approached the human-centered design problem space resonated with me greatly. And and, and I, I just kept coming back to the question of, we're not here to tell you how much it will cost for us to write this code. We are here to help you determine how to solve the problem. Yes. Uh, and, and as engineers, we are likely to solve the problem through code, but that's not what we're here for. Um, and uh, so they they massively influenced the way I thought about engaging with people on, you know, problem spaces and uh, analysis and, and just talking through where the pain is. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. I'm a huge fan of theirs. And I, actually, these days, I teach at VCU School of Arts. I think design thinking. Um, and so heavily inspired by a Tim Brown idea and what they're doing. And I, I arrived at it from the it was something always missing from Agile. You know, Agile was created by software people who sort of just started with the written requirement and then went forth. And what nobody ever spent time on is like, well, why is this in the backlog and who are we? But that was an enormous missing gap all of that. Yeah. And to me, that's the big thing design thinking brought to the table was it's about the people. And if you're not spending time in there, the good news is now we talk to clients, you know, they're very much for discovery phases and they're very much for research. And there, there's a lot more openness now um, to those sort of concepts versus, no, let's just get the requirements in, in story form and, and just start cranking on it. But it's yeah. taken a long time to get there. So, um, yeah, and I, I would say that the, the, the extra step there that I think a lot of engineers aren't allowed to participate in, but sometimes shy away from participating in, is doing that same human-centered thing, but after they ship it. Interesting. Right? Yeah. It's not just why is this in the backlog and and how should it be developed, but now that I've developed it, you know, is it somebody else's problem to make sure that it's being used? the way you thought it was going to be used and that you didn't yeah. add more pain to the world, right? Um, uh, uh, merging a PR is not the end of the story. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's a great uh, quote right there. I will have to grab that one out. <laughs> so so um, before we sort of you know, wrap up, is there any kind of you know, current topics or trends or things that are kind of top of mind um, for you as it relates to sort of you know, problem solving and how you approach. I realized your, your company just six weeks ago went through a, a pretty big sort of pivot, right? So, so maybe it's, um, but I would like to know sort of top of mind, are, are there any things that are kind of like, you know, on your horizon or really where you think that, that, that sort of problem solving is going to evolve? I think um, that I have certainly, as a, as a technologist, as a manager, as a, you know, just as a person trying to sell, solve problems, I've moved away from the, you know, what technology am I going to use 
to solve a particular problem because what I am about now is um, efficiently and effectively helping teams solve problems. And um, I, I want to be sure that I say those words correctly. Um, I don't mean solving them fast. I don't mean measuring velocity. I don't mean, you know, tracking work. I mean, balancing, releasing effective solutions, things that actually solve a problem and solve them well and are of high quality as efficiently as is possible. Um, and uh, what that means for me right now is mostly thinking about things like queuing theory and things like work in progress and balancing the number of work creators in a space with work executors in a space. Um, you know, you can find yourself in a room sometimes in a team where you've got 12 people writing cards or stories or, yeah. you know, making backlogs and only two people executing, <laughs> like actually taking things out of the backlog. Um, you can find yourself in a place where you've got six teams trying to communicate and it happens that the queue between two of those teams is crazy long and nobody knows why, but nobody's thinking about it. Um, the other thing that I'm, I'm constantly thinking about right now is the cost of delay. I think that there's a lot of work in the space about uh, how do you measure the cost of the work, but it's very difficult to measure the cost of delay for work. It's very difficult to surface to a team, hey, this is worth this to us in November, but it's worth half that in January, right? Because those are projections and they're, they're not as easy as just saying, hey, we moved 80 cards last week, which means we should move 84 this week, right? So um, that kind of stuff is important to me right now. And it's the kind of things that, that can generate more alignment on a team and allow the team to organize itself to do the work that they need to get done, right? Like, like understanding what work actually needs to get done next is one of the hardest parts in software development. Um, yeah, all I can say is, and I certainly don't want to, to organize work around what's the easiest next thing to do, which is how work naturally evolves, by the way. <laughs> Yeah, well, especially if you allow people to pick sort of, hey, can I want to do this? A lot of people are going to, you know, and you're early on in a consulting project, right? There's pressure to show delivery, right? So there's there's pressure to, to grab the quick thing because you want to reinforce you made a good choice, right? You know, but however, from overall risk, yeah, you have to bring that pain forward. I mean, that's essentially what you've got to do. You've got to big, find the biggest, riskiest thing and bring it forward. Um, and often, you know, I think the Toyota had some, I think they call it concurrent engineering here. They'll bring that risk forward and then run two separate streams independently solving that problem so that should one of them not work out, you haven't delayed yeah. the overall thing, right? You know, so that's another way to, to think about bringing that risk forward. But if it's too critical to have just one team on it, maybe we give this problem to, to two teams and both have them solve it as well. We're, we're actually doing that today. Like really? Actually, this morning, we have a team that just split itself into two teams to try to get to a solution to a problem uh, that we really need to solve ASAP. And so that happened this morning, which is great. How about that? We didn't even compare notes. Look, look, look at that. I, I that feel, I feel the, the synergy between our Richmond and Durham. All right, so last question. This is the most important one at all. What music are you listening to uh, uh, these days? 
Michael Franti has a new album out, um, uh, and uh, I've been a longtime fan, so um, I'm jonesing on that. Um, uh, Kaleo um, is coming out with their new album, so I've been listening to them drop. Uh, and I actually don't know if it's Kaleo or Kaleo. Uh, I've never actually heard them pronounce yeah. it, uh, but they are a band for originally from Iceland, now from Austin. Um, uh, this is their second album. They're sort of dropping it track by track. Uh, and nice. then um, I am uh, listening to a bunch of stuff that my kids listen to because uh, <laughs> I'm constantly in the car with my kids. And so, uh, you know, uh, what is it? Um, Marshmallow and... Oh, yeah. uh, uh, try hard ninja and the fat rat and yes. you know yeah, all of these ten year olds. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's, it's exactly who you're like. Who is that? No, it's it, and Michael uh, Franti. He was is it? He is still with Spearhead. Um, um, didn't he front? Spearhead um, is one of his projects. Yeah. So, so okay. Spearhead still releases albums from time to time, but he also releases albums on his own. Uh, and he also owns a, uh, yoga retreat in Costa Rica, I think. So, oh, wow. uh, you know, cool. he's I got actually, a good life. <laughs> no, he does. I, I, I love him. Actually, um, I went to Mary Washington and I did security. He came and performed back in the late nineties at our school and I did security. Uh, and I got to stand on the front of the stage right between the, cause everybody wanted to mosh in those days. Right. Even though the music didn't warrant it, you know, <laughs> so I stood between the stage barrier and him. And I remember him coming out and just having lighthearted conversations with folks. And he was just super chill um, on pre-show. And then he got on stage and just did this kick-ass show. It was awesome. So so, so you feel free to edit this out, but I'm going to tell you a story uh, okay. about Michael Franklin. So back when he was with Spearhead in 1990, I'm going to say seven or eight, uh, yeah, Spearhead was in San Francisco. And uh, I went out to the Macromedia Conference with my boss at the time uh, and a couple of colleagues. Uh, and we went out to San Francisco for the Macromedia Conference. And uh, one night, it was the after party at the conference, and there was a there was you know a band that was going to be playing. So we go to the uh, like show, and this awful band is up on stage. Uh, and we were like, you know, let's like we had our free beer, and then we're like, let's blow this taco stand, and let's go see if we can find Spearhead playing. Like it's San Francisco, they live here. How hard could it be? So uh, we spent the next four hours wandering San Francisco, trying to find flyers for shows like this is pre iPhone yeah. Internet stuff. Yeah. So we're just wa wandered San Francisco from 8 p.m. to midnight, um, you know, had some drinks. Uh, and then we ended up at this place called the Up and Down Club, uh, which was like a dance club upstairs and a jazz club downstairs. I'm not sure if it's still open, but we end up at the Up and Down Club. We're upstairs. We get a couple of beverages. My boss goes over to get another drink at the bar, ends up talking to this woman at the bar, waves me over emphatically, and he says, Justin, this is, I can't remember her name. He's like, ask her what she does for a living. I'm like, okay, what do you do for a living? She goes, oh, I'm a, I'm a manager, a music manager. Um, he's like, now ask her who she manages. And I'm like, who do you manage? He goes, I manage this band called um, Spearhead. <laughs> and we're like, oh my God. Are they playing tonight? And they said, yeah, they were the um, band at this Macromedia conference. <laughs> we watched the opener and left five minutes before they took the stage. <laughs> wow. That is a great so, story. So that boss and I, every like two, three years since then, one of us will just randomly reach out and go, we miss Spearhead. Like just in an email or a Slack or an IRC or someplace. Like we'll pop up 
We missed Spearhead. So what's the lesson um, there? Always stick it through the opening band. That that's the lesson always, there. Always stick through the opening band if you don't know who the other band is. <laughs> <laughs> fair point. Fair point. Fair point. All right, Justin. It's been a blast, man. It's been good hanging out with you, catching up with you. Um, see you so again, man. Yeah, man. I'm so happy for you guys and, and, and what's where you're gonna go with this. Let's stay in contact. And um, anyway, thanks for giving us your time and thanks for coming on the program.